This is the Land Legacy Podcast, brought to you by Whitetail Properties Real Estate. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your weekly resource for habitat management, wildlife management, and recreational real estate. We hope you guys enjoy the show. guys i've got our guest on the line right now mr stephen stockman of northern missouri and whitetail properties agent land manager dad you got all sorts of titles and names i'm sure but um stephen how are you today i'm good man how are you doing i'm doing pretty good i can't really complain too much and um, man, I just appreciate you you coming on um, the podcast and and talking about tillable acres and the scenarios, the options that people have on recreational properties as owners, because um, you deal with this a lot, right? And so I just kind of want you to to set the stage of um, you know who are who are people listening to today? Who's Stephen Stockman? What role do you have? And um, why are you knowledgeable on on this topic? Well, Matt, thanks for thanks. For, first and foremost, thanks for having me on the show and and uh, the podcast and, and speaking. Uh, man, I'm just I'm a husband and a father. I live in North Central Missouri. Um, I work for Whitetail Properties Real Estate. Um, Jeff Probst is my partner up here, and and we cover from Mercer County um, on the Iowa line all the way over east towards the Mississippi River, and and. Uh, at the same time as you know selling real estate, I also set up a lot of farms for uh, one of the owners of Whitetail Properties. Um, he buys and sells a lot of ground in several different states, and and I manage and operate those farms uh, for him um, yep. along with him. Um, and you know, I mean, yourself and and Adam, we've worked on in several states on several farms for Paul before, and and uh, I mean, he's he's a juke and driver. He likes to move. That's and, right. And, uh, yeah, and enhance the property every step of the way. He likes to find them. Um, and leave them way better than he found them. So that's right. Um, but yes, I only have say so in this. I mean, I, man, I sell a lot of ground. Uh, Jeff and I sell a lot of ground up here, and we are on a lot of properties up here. We see a lot of um, out of state, uh, you know, uh, land landowners. Um, right. Uh, these guys are typically hands off. You know, they come in, they buy recreational farm ground. Uh, hunting ground, farm ground, a combination, CRP, crops, whatever you want to call it. Um, and uh, we just see a lot of um, a lot of guys that are up here to hunt, but mm-hmm. they also want the income from the property uh, to go along with the hunting. Yeah, and that's a that's an important dynamic, right? There's there's a lot of people in the Midwest, um, right? That's kind of the the crosshairs that a lot of people put on the country from a uh, standpoint of hey, if I want to own land, I want to own land in the Midwest, and and you and Jeff are are positioned very well um, in the northern counties of Missouri, right along the Iowa line. Um, so obviously, there's a lot of people seeking out this land up there. It's it's a high high commodity, and uh, most listings don't last long, especially in today's market. Uh, but but one thing that this position that you're in affords you is knowing that relationship of most of these guys are non-resident landowners, right? They're, they're owning this ground specifically for um, the option uh, of hunting. Like that is probably the, the main focus. Um, but with ground up there, there is um, additional value that, that one can get. A lot of times it's termed in a real estate listing as ROI, return on investment. So the property makes income annually through the tillable acres and CRP acres. Um, so for some context, before we break into um, you know the nuts and bolts of everything, generally speaking, um, in, in your area, what does what what's the balance of most recreational property? Let's just go wooded to pasture ratio or crop to timber ratio. What does most of those recreational farms look like? Uh, honestly, up in my neck of the woods and Jeff's neck of the woods, we're like like a 30, uh, 30 cover, uh, sixty um, open ground of whether that's crop CRP combination or whatever, but uh, really a, a thirty to 30 to uh, 
somewhere in that neck of the woods. You know, yeah. we're 30 yeah. percent here. We're 70 percent here. And uh, and, and a 50 50 even. I mean, it really mm-hmm. varies from uh, my neck of the woods is very much different than Jeff's over over to the east. You know, he's he opens up a little bit more over there um, and uh, gets more into crop ground. But I have way more wooded cover and CRP uh, mix in my neck of the woods. Right, right. So it, it runs across the board, but it's safe to say that um, you know, there, there's a, a considerable percentage of a given property that has um, income coming off of it. It's open ground. It's used by someone for something or set aside through government subsidies to have an income off of it. So this this um, conversation for your area and many other areas in the Midwest is, is definitely one that a, a landowner is going to be considering, um, and especially one who is looking for... Um, you know, the recreational potential out of this ground, like the decisions that they make regarding that open ground, how they use that income stream um, on their property really can play a, a huge impact on the actual hunting um, and, and opportunities there. So what do you generally see with most guys? I mean, corn, soybean type rotations up there are important, but any other ag um, in, in your region that you've seen? You know, we have some guys who, I mean, and I am a huge adversary of this. I love alfalfa. Yeah. I mean, and if, if these guys are looking to come up here and build um, top-notch hunting farms, you know what I mean? I mean, I'm a, I'm more of a, um, set, a set a farm up um, and look at the income and how we can maximize the potential of the farm mm-hmm. and, and create the best hunting possible. Yes. Um, over the last few years, I mean, you, we've done this, but I mean yes. – Man, alfalfa is huge. I mean, we there's some alfalfa in this area and in southern Iowa, but what we found is if, if you've got what your neighbors don't have, you have a much better chance of pulling that deer or more deer over and harvesting them. Yes. Um, and alfalfa is huge. I mean, it pays well. You get three cuttings a year off of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's protein, what, seven months out of the year? I mean, yes. it's, it's green and just pounding pounding protein to deer and that's what i love about uh about that crop is is not only the protein level the the amount of months out of the year that it's really good um but the windows that it hits so like up there in your region come april it's greening up and and a soybean isn't going to be planted that's a a similar (laughs) let's say protein type or source that most people think is just you know, golden and, and the best thing since sliced bread, uh, that's not generally planted in, until mid-May, sometimes later May. And, um, you know, we've got a whole extra month and a half that that crop on the front end of the year and when bucks are coming out of winter, going straight to that good green source that's fresh tender vegetation as it's greening up, they got a whole month and a half of alfalfa before a soybean is is much less just planted and not even emerging and growing and growing strong. And then you kind of flip over on the, um, on the other side of things at the end of the season, a lot of soybeans are harvested through the month of October and um, many alfalfa fields are they're They've had their third cutting, but there's still yep. plenty of vegetation throughout the whole month of October. That is really attractive during that time frame. Um, and on into some portions of uh, of November, if you have a more mild November. So, just that span of time and the groceries that are produced off of those fields are really, really incredible. And I, I like what you said is, you know, that that crop it it's it has its place, and a lot of people haven't done it. But when you when you look at it and stack it side by side next to a, a soybean. Through the through those months, man, it, it's just it can't really be beat, um, in, in my opinion. Now, doesn't have a late season potential like standing grain or standing soybeans does, um, but that also costs a lot of money to hold over, you know, an acre or two of beans. Yeah. So. Yeah, and and to speak on that, I mean, if you take it to the next level, like we typically do on our farms, yep. is. If we have alfalfa, we go in in September and we drill oats and wheat into it. Yes, yes. You know the key to the key to that is your alfalfa has that tap root that is really deep. Mm-hmm. 
So you can run over it with a drill and not harm your alfalfa one bit, and it's typically already after your last cutting of alfalfa. So yep. then your alfalfa goes dormant with a couple frosts yep. or, you know, starts to fall off in yellow, and then your oats and wheat are coming up through it. Now you go from having seven months out of the year green source and protein to having 12 months out of the year with oats and wheat. I mean, just bright green and, and deer pounding it. Yes. So, so you, it, it turns it turns a food plot and a, a source of income and protein for your for your deer into a year round food plot food source. Absolutely. And that's just the way to capture and utilize those open acres for more benefit, more many more months out of the year as hey, this is destination forage. You come here every single day because we've got growing season food, we've got dormant season food. And it's just being wise with the resource uh, of that open ground and knowing the crop of alfalfa, what it can handle, how you can supplement. Um, and then you have a little bit of a grass component, um, you know, in your first cutting, you know, the, the, the next spring, the following spring. And, man, they're, they're a, a lot of cows are going to like that when that's bailed up. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Yeah, and I was, I was going to mention that usually the guy harvesting the alfalfa does not mind one bit because he's got his last cutting of the year and – when he cuts the first cutting the next year, all he has is oats and wheat added into it for extra tonnage. Yeah. Uh, totally, totally. No, it's a, it's a great use of that, like, um, let's say that mixture of food plot, but also high quality um, ag ground, right? There, yeah. There's so much crossover yeah. there, and, and that's why I, what I like about the crop. And I think a lot of people just misunderstand, um, you know, the, the usage of alfalfa and, and the role that it can play because there's the common just, um, you know, corn soybean rotation is what so many people think about. Um, but man, a lot of good deer killed over alfalfa. It's just, you don't necessarily see it as commonly as, um, soybeans and corn because guess what? It's just not as commonly planted, but if it was planted more and then you add in those uh, wheat and oats into it, and there'd be a lot more deer killed off of the alfalfa. So you've seen the power of it. Um, you, you, you know, you know what it is. And I guess too, we didn't even talk about the benefit for turkeys on that. Um, but yeah. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. It's stuff. huge. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so with that, with that all being said, um, and that leads us right into really the, the conversation of how to how to look at ag ground if you are a recreational landowner um, because yeah. it has significant value and relevance to that landowner. Like we talked about from the ROI aspect of things um, and, and the crops that are chosen. Um, Maybe maybe the the crops that are left standing, um, but then not everything with crop ground though is all um, daisies and roses. Um, you know there there's some there's some difficulties and cons to having some of that um, and making those decisions. So with this podcast, we kind of want to walk people through the scenarios in which um, let's say out of box thinking when it comes to some ag ground. Um, whether they want to begin a process of cash renting that land or sharecropping or custom farming um, agricultural ground, because all those are viable options and, and you've had your place um, in, in doing all of them and, and seeing how this was going to benefit this landowner, this benefits this landowner. Um, so, if you if you will, you can't just break down those three different scenarios uh, of um, let's say ag ground ownership and management when it comes to the role of a landowner. Yeah, so I'll tell I'll say this right off the get go. This is my opinion only. Yep. But man, yep. I, I see a lot of guys, and, and it comes from. Uh, I think the decision ultimately comes from how much money. Yep. You know, the, the amount of time you have, how much money you have to go into it, how hands-on you want to be, and how frequent you're going to be around it. Sure. So, in, in most situations that I see up here, um, we'll sell a farm. You know, let's say we sell 100 acres and it's got 40 acres tillable on it. You know? Yep. And let's say it's good tillable. Let's say it's, it's – let's say – 
the majority of my ground up here is hill ground. We have a lot of hill ground crops. Um, let's say you get 125 to 150 bucks an acre for cash rent on that. Um, and somebody is putting that money every single year into their pocket, either for uh, a farm payment to help substitute some income for the farm and help uh, pay for the farm. Mm-hmm. Um, if they don't need the income from the tillable, they're using it for food source for their animals. They leave some standing, you know, uh, or um, they are. Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Uh, okay. So either substituting for a farm payment or they are. Um, man, I'm sorry, Matt. I really good. nail that. <laughs> uh, you, you, I, you get rolling. I, I, was, I was thinking forward. I, I bet you. Uh, I bet you. You got a. You got a text message and it distracted you because that happens to me on the podcast all the time. I see my phone go off. I'm like, you know what? What is that? And I start looking at. it. I was like, oh man, I completely lost my train of thought. So, um, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of yeah, ways that people though are are utilizing that income, um, that income stream, and and or that that crop that's left in the field. Um, what would you say your average income is off of, let's say, um, hill ground, open ground that's cropped versus bottom ground in your neck of the woods? Yeah. So, well, before I answer that, I know where I was going with that. Most guys are using it for income for the payment for the farm, or they're using it for, uh, input costs as in blinds or trail cameras or tree stands or ladder stands. You know, that's money that's not coming that's, that's money that's not coming out of their pocket, per se, when they buy the farm and they're trying to get it set up and, and to hunt with their, mm. their wife, their kids, uh, whatever, their their bre- best friend or their brother. You know what I yes. mean? That's money yes. that they're taking from the property that was kind of a bonus mm-hmm. if they didn't want to use it for the payment itself. And they're using it for setup so they can go directly into the, the year uh, without spending money out of their pocket to get going. Right. Now, I see that a lot, very, very frequently. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, and then back to your other question was, you know, hill ground up here is somewhere between 130 to 150 bucks an acre mm-hmm. uh, for hill ground cash rent. Um, now, if you go to some of our better bottom grounds, we're 200 to 225. Um, I've heard of guys this year offering 275 an acre, wow. yeah. which is crazy. That's to me, that's more uh, Iowa prices. I mean, Iowa, they yeah. get a lot more. Some of their ground is a lot better than ours and, and flat and bigger. Um, so they can offer a little bit more money for that, but 275 is, is, has been on the high side of bottom dirt for us in this area. Got it. Got it. So yeah, you, you, you can do the math there for yourself, but you know, cash renting that, um, what was the scenario you said? Was it 40 acres of ground? Yes. 40 acres of ground. Right. 40, 40 acres of ground. If you got $200, an acre cash rent, you're looking at 8,000 bucks, you know, yep. right there back to the landowner on, on bottom ground. And let's, let's roll with 130 um, times 40. That's $5,200 um, right there. And, and essentially uh, that that's, that's pretty much the, uh, um, the responsibility, right. Is, is, is open up the gate and say, have at it boys. And then hand over the check. That's exactly right. Take care of it. Treat it like it's yours. Leave it better than you found it. But um, it's yours to to put crops in and, and hand a check over. That's yeah. right. And, and and what percent of folks, and now everyone listening, you know, it's you have to consider that many of the, the people that um, you're selling to and working with are non-residents. But yep. how many of those folks are doing that scenario? 90%. 90% of people are, are just straight cash renting to a local farmer who has all the equipment. They're just coming in. Um, there, there's no out-of-pocket risk or expense. Um, essentially, for that landowner, um, all that is placed on the actual tenant farmer renting that ground. Correct? That's correct. That's correct. Okay. Yep. So, so. In that scenario, we talk about the pros, right? Lack of responsibility. You get a check. Yep. You decide what you want to do with that, how you want to utilize it. Um, but but what are some of the potential cons of that? 
Um, what are some of the scenarios that you've seen play out when you have a non-resident, there's not many eyeballs on that tenant farmer, um, and, and then they don't really have necessarily a say in the crop because they don't have skin in the game. Um, although right. it's on their property, it's not their crop, so they don't own it. So what are some of those scenarios that you've seen play out that have been negative in that situation, in a cash rent situation? Well, and I think you just nailed the, the, the nail on the head right there is when you said control. You have zero control whatsoever. You own the ground, yes. You do not own the crops. The crops is the farmers or your tenant. And, uh, and what I've seen the most negative from it is that you – these guys come let's say some guys want to come up and he brings his his uh his boys and his his cousin and they want to set tree stands and blinds up in one weekend they have yep. 300 acres and they've got to cover it and get everything set up well they drive the edge of the crops or they or they cut through the the beans or whatever to get to a location to set a blind or whatever uh but it's not theirs you have yes. zero control yes. over that so what they do is they get docked or they get, you know, some sort of a damage charge, you know, for, mm -hmm. for damage to the crops. And it, and it wasn't like it was uh, something they were doing intentional or something they were, uh, they were just being with malice you know, intent. Abs absolutely. They just, yeah. they have a, they live, they live 12 hours away. Yep. They have two days that their kids don't have ball games and that their wife is, uh, off with her friends for somewhere for the weekend and they've got to come up and they've got to get box blinds and tree stands set for the weekend or for the, for the upcoming deer season. So they've got to roll, yes. you know, and, and most of these you, you're covering two or 300 acres. So they've got a four wheeler, they've got a ranger, they've got a tractor, they've got something. Well, all that you have to access is the biggest complaint or the biggest key factor I've seen in most of these farms is that you and I both know you have to have access or, yes. or it doesn't, or it doesn't do you any good whatsoever. Right. Yep. No, no doubt. No doubt. And, and so, right. You ha if you want a road, if you want something not planted, then you have to re reduce that from the actual acreage being planted. So the farmer's not going to pay for something and then not plant it. And, and, right. um, you know, if there is damage, then, then you're liable for that damage. Although you needed to access your own property, um, so what do, what about like leaving the standing grain, right? Most of these recreational landowners from a, from a late season forage standpoint, they're wanting yep. um, grain to be left in the field. What does that conversation yep. and that scenario play out? Because I've got a couple stories uh, probably would, would mimic some of yours um, of working with a tenant farmer and the grain option either didn't happen or it got messed up in the line of communication. So uh, what, what does that look like for a landowner? Yeah, I feel like I've, I've come across that a lot, but I will tell you this. I've been working with some farmers over the last few years up here in my area. And man, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, man, they're about as solid as they come when it comes to that. Like, good. and I've been very fortunate, but mm -hmm. they're good friends of mine. Uh, we grew up together. They're hard workers. They're just a big family operation and they do things right. Yeah. Um, but I can send them a map. I can say, here is Jacob, Jacob's farm, and it's 200 acres, and he wants, within this field in the bottoms, he wants four acres of grain left in this location. I can outline it out in a map, send it to them, and then refresh them when they go to harvest it, and they leave it. Everything is just like it's supposed to be. Nice. And that is the <laughs> ideal prime, you know, uh, scenario that, that just got played out, right? And, of course, the landowner would be responsible for paying the um the crop price yep, yep to the farmer what that crop would be but essentially he's getting a food plot left standing um for his fall that he didn't have to plant he didn't have to break his back he didn't need a tractor to do it essentially he's just paying the crop the input price <laughs> and the commodity yep. price uh for leaving that standing grain so it's a very hands off type option um but Sometimes I've I've seen where yeah sent maps sent Onyx files um, to to farmers and then they were got, they got busy um, on, on their own stuff harvesting other farms and they sent a custom uh, combine head through there and you know, whether yeah. they didn't communicate or that that person didn't really know the farm layout as well um, and things just either didn't get left period 
or they realize halfway through, oh, shoot, I was supposed to leave that. And so you got combine heads, you know, the width of that going right through a, a two-acre, you know, of standing grain, essentially. So there is those scenarios that could play out negatively if communication levels aren't that great. And these farmers, we're not blaming them necessarily for it. I, I, it's not, they're doing, they're not doing that out of malice intent either. Um, but sometimes these guys are working 11 o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. They're tired. They forget about it or they're just doing it underneath the lights and don't hardly see exactly where they're at. So like, you know, there, there's a lot of those scenarios, um, that, that can and do play out in a cash rent situation that you're trying to leave standing grain or buy standing grain from that farmer yeah i agree 100 percent. these guys are usually wide open during the fall you know they're trying to get their crops out and they're they're racing mother nature which they are getting the crops in as well you know Mm -hmm. so all i this is what i have to say the most important thing that i've seen and that we deal with is if you want standing grain or if you want um access to your farm you know, ma'am, when you buy the farm or you meet with your farmer, just have a face-to-face and communicate, communicate, communicate. Because yes. if you do yes. it, if you do it on the front side, it's way easier than doing it on the back side. There's no doubt about that. Um, <clears throat> what has been your? Because this is a common recommendation that that we'll make, and of course, this is something that you would need to ask your individual farmer before you do it. Um, have their mm-hmm. permission and blessing. Because, again, remember, they are renting that ground for that year. Um, and and so they need to be on board with it. But the receptiveness of um, going in and overseeding grains, like small grains, like uh, wheat, rye, into some of these fields, either pre uh, pre or post-harvest, um, have, have your guys been pretty receptive to that, the farmers that you've worked with, essentially – act as if it's like a cover crop and just overseed um, pre or post harvest. Uh, Yes. Very receptive. Actually. I I don't, we don't usually have any, any, any negative conversations around that at all. Most of that stuff helps with erosion. You know, most of it's always putting something back into it and help holding the soil. And it's, it's, you know, essentially it's, I mean, taking some of the pressure off of their existing crop. I mean, Mm -hmm. Some of these places, you know, we'll do that specifically in the areas of beans that we want to leave. Let's say we have a blind set and we have four acres we're going to leave or three acres we're going to leave in front of this blind for late season. Well, when the beans start yellowing, I usually go in with a backpack seeder and I seed oats and wheat into those beans before the leaves fall. Mm -hmm. So your oats and wheat go in there. It's trapped down low. The leaves fall on top of it. You get rain. Everything sprouts. You have nothing but green underneath your dried up beans at that point. And then um, the green is taking the pressure off of the other dried beans around the rest of the farm because everything is sucked to that single area that you are in turn going to pay your farmer for anyway. Yes. Yes, absolutely. No, it's a, it's a great option. Glad to hear their their receptiveness and doing that because they have so much more to gain out of it um, from you know harnessing, holding soil nutrients up top layer, keeping an active root system, reducing erosion, so on and so forth. It's a positive uh, for most of those guys, and there's enough information out there of the benefits of of cover cropping that. They say, hey, that's your input, not mine. But, yeah, sure, go ahead. And in most of these yeah. situations, it doesn't impede the actual ef- efficiency of harvesting anything. Um, and especially in areas that you're paying to leave the standing grain, well, they're not harvesting anyways. So it's it's now your grain. It's now your acre to have that control back on. Um, but there would be different practices come spring that they may have to apply uh, when it comes to terminating that wheat rye uh, situation. So all that to be said, make sure you get permission, but many are receptive to that um, option. So let's um, let's now compare and contrast the side of custom farming because you've worked in that capacity um, before. And um, just kind of explain for people what that custom farming would look like and then we'll break out those pros and cons 
Yeah, so the custom farming option, man, I mean, I've seen, like like we've just been talking about, I've seen cash rent, which is 90%, and I've seen custom, which is probably 10% of my clients. Um, so the custom, the deal with the custom, you have a lot of money out front. I mean, it's money out of your pocket. You pay for the seed, you pay for the fertilizer, you pay for the spraying, you pay for everything. And then in turn, you just pay somebody to come plant it, or you and and or you pay somebody to come harvest it and haul it away. Right. <clears throat> so the key point for custom harvest is there's two of them. The most important is it's a lot of money up front out of your own pocket to get established. The second key is it's your crop. You don't need to ask permission to drive through your beans to go set a blind if you want to because right. it's money coming out of your pocket essentially at the end of the year. Yes. Yes, you can you can yeah. leave standing grain where you want to, right? You have to ask permission. Say, can I purchase that acre? Um, can I can I can I do X? Because like here here's the I guess the scenario that we didn't necessarily talk about on the on the other side, but I want to address real quick because it, it's much different in the custom farming side of things. So if you're cash renting, let's say you've got bottom ground and you're cash renting, and and the acres that you say. Um, Oh, gosh, uh, that you say, hey, this is the four acres that I want. And it just so happens to be in, in the most productive portion of the field. Um, and yeah. everything else that they've farmed around has a lower yield than that. They're, they, they, they may say, well, my average of the field is X, but now you have to pay um, you know, more, right, more for that portion because yeah. that's the best portion. You're like, wow, that's super expensive now. And, and so – you know, you you might feel like, oh, you're you're kind of getting chipped because the rest of the field was, let's just say, 200 bushel, and then you're going to say that that's 230 bushel acres. Uh, so, you you know, you can have those situations play out when it comes to the cash renting, but on the custom side of things, um, you know, it's again, it's it's money out of your pocket that you're not going forward and harvesting at the initial harvest of things. Um, it, it, it's it's your 230 bushel or your 200 bushel an acre crop. Yeah, and, and that's a good point. I'm glad you mentioned that because you know as well as I do, from bottom ground to hill ground, <clears throat> your yields vary so much. Yes. Right? And then also where you decide to leave your crop. Let's say you want to leave it inside corner. Right. Yeah. Because it's not in the middle of the best production. Um, it's 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 not it's not going to take extra to get done. But here here's what happens with that. You leave an inside corner. You have two field edges there. Right. Yep. Yeah. Well, you can guarantee the first five to ten rows are completely demolished already because what a deer do. They step out of the uh, cover. Yep. They browse right there on the outside rows or. Your shade line, your, yes. your drip line, you know, your trees, all the trees are overhanging right there. So your crops are not as good. Yep. So typically your farmers are more receptive to leave things on the inside or up next to the cover or an inside corner versus the center of the field where they're not getting pounded. Because in most cases, you don't see in daylight anyway, a 200 inch deer standing in the middle of a 200 acre bottom eating. <laughs> Correct. Yes. Most of the time, he's tucked close to the cover where he can escape and get gone, yes. right? So, and the same the same thing goes for hill ground. So, what's the most important thing when you're hunting this rolly terrain we have here in north central Missouri? Um, you know, if I'm hunting late season, my biggest concern is going to be uh, wind, wind direction, um, stability of the wind. So, I'm going to want to hunt high. Yep. Correct? Correct. Okay, well, your side hills are most generally going to be your less production crop. Yes. You know, you're going to get less yield on your side hills than you are up on top of the hill. Well, your farmers are more apt to leave the side hills next to the cover and the trees, uh, the, the, the part that's eroding and, and getting washed away, more than they are the hilltops because that's, that's your right. best soil, that's your most stable ground, that's your best yields. And, and easiest to combine as well. Right, it's flat ground, Absolutely. level level combine head. So lots of those variables, and and you know as much as I do, man. You we're not we're not bow hunting, or you could be bow hunting, but but we're not duck hunting or goose hunting where like you have to be on the X, you have to be where the where the ducks are landing. But like 
man, sometimes with the setup of the ground or your access is limited, you just have to leave standing grain in certain locations. And, and right, it could be on a ridgetop. And now yeah. the farmer's like, oh, man, I really want to harvest that, right? He's, that's his crop um, that he's yeah. been putting in. That's his money. Um, so, right, you have to make those considerations. But know ahead of time, that's essentially the, the scenario or their perspective that they are going to be coming from in this. Yeah, and that's where we come when we go back to the beginning. You know, I can't even stress it enough, man. I, I respect those guys uh, 100% for what they do. Um, and generally, man, we're playing. You know what yes. I mean? I yes. mean, I am I say that. Like, I've got three little girls, and, and my older two girls, they hunt with me, and we have a blast. And if we go out, you know, they're sitting in a blind, and we're sitting over food, and they're seeing deer, and they're seeing turkeys, and, and they're having a blast. But – we're playing and those guys are working. That's right. Yep. You know, so it's, it's complete different. That's their everyday job. And to us and to a lot of my clients, it's their hobby and their passion. Correct. Correct. So I can't stress enough is just need to be upfront foremost from the very beginning. You know, if you buy a farm to hunt and you want to leave grain and you want to drive through it and you want to have access, have the conversation up front and foremost. That way you don't have to have hard feelings on the backside after you do it. And then you're trying to pay out of your pocket to make it right. That's exactly right. Yeah, no, that's a great, great point. Um, and, and so, you know, that, that goes, you know, back into that, the custom farming side of things is, you know, there's, there's, you have, you have, <clears throat> let's say complete control, but you have to, to the degree of, you, you select the variety, you determine who's going to custom farm it. You might hire a local farmer to actually plant it if you don't have the equipment yourself. You may pay a local co-op to come and spray. You need to have eyeballs <clears throat> on that crop and know when to spray. Um, be able to have a little bit of knowledge. You can have a crop consultant, uh, but have some knowledge of you know, disease, um, have some knowledge of, uh, you know, identifying plant stress. And if, if, um, additional, uh, let's say inputs need to be made, you have to have some existing knowledge or seek that out and pay for it. If you're going to go the custom route, because you don't have the benefit of the farmer and their knowledge doing all that for you. And then again, you just at the end of the season, pay them for the grain that you want. But, um, the, the other big consideration i think when it comes to the custom farming is you have completely complete control over everything um which which is which is nice but you have a ton of expenses um there are you know you can work with a a a local bank or a bank to um help front the money going of the input cost going into the actual crop. Um, and then at the end, once you're harvesting your crop, you, you pay that lump sum back um, to the bank. But there, there are avenues to help reduce that, uh, let's say, out-of-pocket cash expense to do the custom farming. Um, but, but regardless, what we're dealing with and what we're talking about is this is a – this is a commodity, right? This is a moving market of what is the grain actually going to sell for? What is the cost to actually put it in? Well, there's no set number on that. You know, diesel prices, right. fertilizer prices, uh, lime, um, herbicide, all these things, it, it changes and it, and it moves. And so there, of course, are some projections and long-term um uh, you know, things that you can look at to try and estimate. But at the end of the day, you don't know whether a hailstorm is going to come. You don't know whether um, there's going to be bad winds. You don't know if you can get in with the combine and harvest things when you want to. You can get a lot of rain and, and you just can't get into the field. So there's always so much risk when it comes to making those decisions for yourself or when you're just having a farmer cash rent things from you, um, there's there's a, there's so many variables to it all. Um, you just have to know sometimes, I guess when you're custom farming, you can come out on top. You can come out and say, wow, I, I, I made way more money this year by custom farming things than I did if I cash rented. And, and so like <clears throat> when we were talking pre-show, Stephen, you know, I've got numbers from some other clients in, in a 
different portions of the country, and they're doing really well this year on um, on, on doing a custom farming type application. And then we ran some numbers um, that you guys have in your region based on your yields and your inputs, um, and it was pretty much the exact same that came out as cash rent. So every year, depending on your, your region, those inputs and the variables – and, and the fact that, hey, this is just a market uh, and a moving commodity price, you just you, – you, there's some risk here um, with the custom yep. thing. But at the end of the day, one scenario says I own the crop. One scenario says the farmer, the tenant, owns the crop. And, and I think that's the biggest distinction of, hey, if you fall into a category of I don't – the, the additional income from the farming side of things, it's really nice, but I don't have to rely on it to make payments, then you may consider or entertain the idea of custom farming. Now, being a non-resident landowner, that doesn't really work out that well because you don't have eyeballs on it to make some of those judgment calls. But you, it, it, the cash rent <laughs> side of things um, works really well for the guys that, that you tend to work with that 90% because it's local guy who ends up farming it um, and then just sends a check to your non-resident landowner and he's happy and, and it all works out. That's, that's just very common. But there are scenarios and instances that as a landowner, I feel like a lot of people, they just don't even know, let's say, the differences in the two like why would i choose one versus the other what's the advantage here what's the disadvantage what's my risk what's what's my reward um and and a lot of landers they just again they just don't know um what what their true options are when it comes to whether they custom farm or whether they just cash rent would you say that that's one of those the scenarios Stephen, that <coughs> most people just don't fully quite understand yeah, a hundred percent. And I'll and, and I will even add to that. And this is something we haven't even talked about, Matt, but like you need to know. I mean, you need to yes. do your research. If there's a I mean, I don't care if you're cash renting or if you're uh doing a share or a custom or whatever, you need to know what all goes into it. You need to know what the differences are between the three. And because well there's instances people cash rent their farm. Yes. And they're relying yes. on that. Let's just—I'm just gonna throw a number out. They're relying on six thousand dollars to go towards their farm payment, correct? Yes. Well, they haven't done their homework, and for the last three years, their farmer hasn't paid their tenants mm-hmm. up front, or they haven't paid them even on the backside. Yes. You know, some guys will do a payment up front At, right before they before they plant. They do a one-time payment. You're paid in full. You're, you've got the money. The, the, the landowner has the money before crops go in the ground. Some of them do like a 50-50. Some of them do, hey, I'll pay you uh, 3000 here, and then when we harvest it, I'll pay you 3000 there. There's your six grand, and you're covered then. So you're, you've got some skin in the game. The farmer has some skin in the game from the beginning, but not all of it. Yep. And then some of them do it where, hey, I'll harvest all my grain, and then when I get paid for my grain, I'll pay you for that. Well, that's a huge liability, yes. you know, especially – if you, the landowner, are relying on that money to go to a payment, you're waiting all the way to the end of the year, typically when your payment's due, uh, yeah. farm, to collect that money to put towards it, right? Yes, for sure. Okay, so do your homework on your farmer. Take, uh, if it's me, if it's Jeff, if it's Jason, if it's any agent you're using, um, take their word for it. I mean, I don't want to say take their word for it, but I mean, use their local their local plug, yes. you know, Hey, I've got this farmer. I've got this farmer. I've got this farmer. They're all good results. You guys come up with a reasonable price between you guys. And then um, I'll help you out however I can on the flip side. Let's say custom harvest, something we didn't even talk about. You've got all this expense, right? Yep. To, to put this crop in out of your pocket. That's seed. That's chemical. That's fertilizer. That's paying someone to plant it. And that's paying someone to harvest it. We haven't even spoke about Mother Nature. We haven't talked <laughs> yeah. about crop, crop insurance. Yes. You have to pay for a crop insurance because what happens if it's August 15th and your crop is done or let's say September 15th, whatever. Your crop is finished and you have a hailstorm come through your area and completely takes out your crop, but you do not have crop insurance. What happens? Yep. That's all on you. 100% of your money 
so you've paid out of pocket all year and got your crop to its full potential is wiped out you're gone so yep. that's why i say you have to do your homework and you have to know what goes into each step and each process because you don't want to be left high and dry no no doubt no doubt um yeah i mean there's there's nuances there's things that you need to uh, be considerate of if you're going to go that custom route but i don't want it to sound like it's terribly intimidating because there are people out there who are willing to help and there's uh you know it's amazing what you can learn and find out by by doing some simple research or researching um and and again you don't have to have the equipment to do custom farming i think that's one of the big misunderstandings is oh if it's custom farming i don't need to i don't want to buy all that equipment well no you can hire it out there's there's a lot of local farmers who who will do stuff on hire they're the ones who are going to come and combine they're the ones who are going to come and plant um so it's not like that has to fall on your shoulders to actually do the work when it comes to custom right. farming, but you do have to source and find essentially um, what would be a contractor to do it and contract them to plant and contract them to harvest. Um, and so that all that all works, but you do accept way more risk and liability for your own crop. Um, it's just up to them to plant it, but it's up to you to monitor it and then call someone when it needs to be sprayed so on and so forth. Uh, but no, those are great, great points to add into the conversation um, about the compare and contrast of cash renting versus custom farming and, and what you have um, as as options. And, you know, I see a lot of times, you know, even the, the share cropping come into um, conversations. Um, yeah. And, and that can be, you know, a combination of, hey, the the landowner just assumes some more um, um, ownership of the crop because they're saying, hey, I will contribute. I will reduce the farmer's um, input pricing. I'll pay for this. I'll pay for that. I just need you to go in and, and, and do it. Um, and then you do it on shares. You know, maybe you split the crop 50-50, 60-40, something like that, depending on, again, the the um, inputs and and the the, the um, let's say the cost of having that ground um, what would be cash rented out right that value um, and um, now you you've kind of had this share so there's there's an extreme of cash renting very hands off you just get a check then you kind of go to the middle ground of of crop sharing where you share expenses and then you share the uh, profits of it and then there's the custom farming where you assume on the other side of the spectrum you assume all the risk you have all the the money tied into it but you get all the benefit of uh, and control of your land and your crop where it gets left how it gets left and um, you know the the other the other thing I've seen when it comes to custom farming on wreck ground is, you know, you can leave standing grain, um, and, and you know, a lot of people like to mow down corn or or and whatnot. Um, but I've I've seen it where, you might mow a couple paths through standing corn, but come March time frame, um, you can go in and harvest what's left still standing if you have ample grain left you've got the ability to go back in and harvest that um and and then take that money back essentially that you had left but there's leftover crop harvest it um and and so that's that's an important consideration too when it comes to um you know leaving some standing grain on a custom farming scenario yeah absolutely i've seen it work out well where essentially they someone paid a a farmer i guess this was actually on a on a cash rent situation but they paid a farmer um for the grain they said okay yep i'm gonna leave that portion standing they mowed a couple paths and trails through it and shooting lanes and and pretty much left two-thirds of what they paid for standing and um the deer didn't consume all of it they went and harvested and were able to recoup like 60 70 percent of um, what they had actually paid farmer uh, for that standing grain at the end of uh, winter time. So it worked out really well. Um, you know, that, that, that whole amount that they paid for didn't actually get used and they were able to harvest it. 
Yeah, which is huge. Yeah. I mean, if you can always, if you can accomplish both your goals in in one scenario, that's huge. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, any other points, Stephen, that you wanna you wanna speak on or talk to um, about um, you know the the agricultural side of things when it comes to recreational land ownership? Man, I can't think of anything. I, I'm just, I mean, I've, I've stressed this already, but communication, I think, is key. I yes. mean, from day one, I think you need to, um, you know, tap into your local resources wherever you're at. If you, if you, if it's around your home, or if it's, you know, if you're a, a vacant landowner or whatever, it doesn't matter. Tap into your local resources. Do a little bit of research. You know, put a little bit of elbow grease into it, and and just uh, be smart about it. Um, yeah. That way. You're, you don't have hard feelings in the end because I've seen a lot of hard feelings on the backside when it all could have been um, avoided if it was talked about up front or dealt with up front. Absolutely. Great, great point. Um, if someone wants to reach out regarding land in North Missouri, um, how, how can how can they find you and best reach you? Man, I'm on I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Uh, Stephen Stockman at WhitetailProperties.com. Um, you're more than welcome to email me, uh, any of that. I'm happy, man. I mean, I'm, I, I love talking land. I love talking to people about deer and, and deer hunting and rec ground and farm ground and, and all of it. You know, I'm just like you, we like to, we like to have good conversations. Yes, sir. We like, we like to play outside. <laughs> yeah. And they're easy conversations with yeah. like-minded people, you know, everything just flows. That's it. That's it. Well, man, I appreciate your time today and, and you sharing your, your knowledge and expertise um, of land in North Missouri. Um, so, guys, if, if you've ever considered it, um, highly recommend you reaching out to Stephen. Um, they've got a great team up that way and can help you um, walk you through steps. And um, you, guys sell, you guys sell a lot of land. I know you guys have been busy. You look like you're still staying busy up that way. Um, and we're kind of transitioning into that late summer, fall mentality, man. We're, we're not but like four weeks away from season. I don't, I don't know if you know that or not, Stephen. It's yeah, coming. dude, I'm not even, I'm not even close to ready for it. <laughs> we just got, we just got about 25 acres of green plots planted and rain on them. Ooh, so I nice. finished green plots up for myself, clients, uh, whatever, whatever yeah. we have, um, you know, all last Saturday, and then we got about an inch and a half, two inches of rain in two days on them, and then we actually have another rain coming, I think, tomorrow, 60% chance, so, oh, wonderful. Uh, yeah, crucial for, for those green plot plantings, and then, you know, from that, I'm going to go to Oklahoma for a week next week yeah. and, and uh, work on the Oklahoma and Kansas ranch for, for a week, and then right back to North Missouri and Southern Iowa to start drilling um, the first two weeks of September, we'll start drilling in oats and wheat into alfalfa or just those uh, establishing those later plots, you know, with oats and wheat. So, yeah. Uh, still a lot of a lot of work left, uh, but uh, you're right. Season's coming quick. It's approaching fast, and I'm not ready for it. <laughs> What's new, right? What's new from every other year? This is just that hustle and bustle yeah. of, of late August and early September. It's just here, and it just is what it is. But uh, – Oh well, we'll we'll be ready come September fifteenth for Missouri. Absolutely, that north wind starts blowing, everything Woo! starts cooling down. Your, your your attitude changes real quick. Those those cool mornings at, with a cup of coffee at six a.m. It's like, all right, yep, yeah, I'm ready. Just I'm yeah. here. So man, I I can't, I, I can't wait. Yes, yeah, sir. Well, I I appreciate it, man. Um, and uh, again, thank you for your time, and we will we'll chat soon. Yeah, absolutely appreciate you having yeah. me.